Welcome to Wonks and War Rooms, where Polcom theory meets on-the-ground strategy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Dubois, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Today, my guest is Tiffany Gooch, and we're talking about issue ownership. Tiffany, can you introduce yourself, please? My name is Tiffany Gooch. I am a principal consultant at Aurora Strategy. Uh, my work focuses on crisis communications, public affairs, and government relations. Um, I'm originally from Windsor, Ontario. I always like to open with that. I'm a fifth-generation Black Canadian um, and always uh, looking for ways to also use my platforms as well as possible. I write a, a bi-weekly column for the Toronto Star, um, and uh, as much as I'm I've worn many different hats, uh, sort of see myself as uh, an activist and lifelong uh, mission of, uh, of, of elevating the lives of Black Canadians and, and women. So those are my missions and uh, I do a lot of different work in between. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So let's jump into the idea of issue ownership. Have you heard of issue ownership before? This is the first time I'm hearing the term issue ownership. I think of issue management often, and uh, uh, but uh, happy to, to jump into this because I probably uh, have a different definition for the same <laughs> thing. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So the idea of issue ownership is basically that different political parties will like own an issue. They will have this perceived... Uh, relevance, competence, reputation for being really great at dealing with that issue or being the party that Mm -hmm. you want to vote for because you care about that issue. And so the idea of issue ownership is that political parties can kind of strategically make use of their own issues that they own uh, and they can make use of those to develop communication strategies or to develop comms materials. And, And voters can also use information about who owns what issues to decide who to vote for and and it impacts political behavior and their decisions to donate or to volunteer or to actually go vote on election day. Does that track in your experience? Do you see issue ownership? Are there other words you would use to describe it? Yeah, no, I, I, I can see it. Um, definitely uh, with that definition, I, I, uh, I understand it. Um, I think it, it's uh, it's actually something that I found to be quite complicated because, you know, of course, a party is made up of many different people. So if the party itself isn't owning an issue that the individuals in the party uh, would like to see them owing, um, I think I've always seen that to uh, that to becoming uh, become an issue. And uh, I guess in my introduction, I didn't uh, declare uh, my own partisanship. I'm, I'm quite liberal. Um, and uh, and so uh, in my time, especially writing a column for the Toronto Star, I've I've tried to make sure that I'm speaking on progressive issues at all times, even if it's an issue that my party isn't owning, to also from within push them to uh, to begin to own on uh, issues that uh, that I, I felt that they, they could have done a better job on. So, yeah, no, hearing you uh, give that definition, I, I, I feel a little bit differently, but definitely uh, have have tried to be one of the types within my, my own party to, to, to push a little bit more and uh, expect higher um, on the issues that uh, sometimes don't make the, uh, make the list. I think that's a really important component of this. When in the literature we're talking about issue ownership, there's usually like a list of like four or five issues, which parties own which issues. And usually they figure this out by doing survey research and they're like, mm-hmm. which party do you think will deal best with crime? Which party do you think will deal best with the environment. And so we end up with this really small list of potential issues that can be owned when we do that kind of research. And when we also look at what each of the parties want to put as their big one that they're pushing forward, 
that's, again, a very limited list. And so having people within those organizations or outside of those organizations saying, like, hey, there are issues you are missing. We need to focus on some new things. That's important, obviously, for for policy development. How do you think that connects or do you think that connects to engaging potential voters? Like, do you see this idea of voters picking their party based on a given issue? And if so, is bringing in new issues a way to get new voters? So, I I mean, I definitely have found, uh, especially over the last 10 years, uh, a sense that parties were were understanding that they needed to uh, sort of center their communications around the issues that were going to touch voters. And so, we'll have started to see more tailored voter issue uh, uh, communication pieces. Um, And uh, as a political communicator on the lobbying side, a lot of my advice to any client was, you know, keep that list short of what your asks are or what uh, what it is you're talking about, because uh, the attention span of the audience that you're speaking to, uh, you know, can't can't have a list of third, a laundry list of 30 things on it. And so uh, I've definitely seen um, for, for political parties on that side, um, ensuring that uh, they've got a, a, a clear sense of what their top issues are and, uh, and then tailoring and targeting uh, the voters that, uh, that they think will be moved by those issues with, uh, with uh, communications materials that really highlight their work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, definitely have seen uh, that feeling that, uh, that they've needed to focus on the ones where they can win, where they have the very best. Uh, stance and especially comparatively to other parties where they're uh, they feel that they're going in the direction that uh, um, you you said it right that they're polling and (laughs) that their research showed them that uh, that people want to see them go in but I've also noticed that in uh, especially in Canadian politics because of uh, the the multiplicity of our parties um, it's especially a little bit more difficult to uh, to to sort of edge out other parties on on those issues especially when you have uh, specific parties that are both in that progressive space and so a lot of my advocacy has been around you know whether or not a different party has uh, ownership over this and I get I guess I'd say now uh, one that's quite important to me is uh, this uh, this racial justice movement that's taken place this year and so uh, the, the decision that uh, a governing party might need to make of uh, do we make this an issue that uh, that we're moving on very progressively? Do we think that we need to cede the space because we'll never go as far as the folks who really care about this uh, think we'll go? And uh, and pushing back and sort of saying, you know, we still have a responsibility to do something. So whether or not you think we'll go as far as the advocates uh, expect, um, this uh, another major issue that was quite large for me and I was really hoping to see centered in the throne speech was childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, uh, again, do you, do you think that... Uh, it's, it's going to resonate with voters. A, of course, that's going to be central for them. Um, but also, it just has to happen right now. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, so whether or not uh, you can own it, whether or not you have the best policy and, uh, and the, the sort of essential stakeholders and, and advocates are going to say that what you're doing is the best, uh, is the best thing to be done, um, that, uh, that we still have to have an adequate stance and, uh, and, and communicate accordingly. You bring up a couple of really interesting points. I want to start with, you kind of hinted at this idea, what we would call in academia salience of an issue, right? And so both racial justice and childcare in this particular moment in time are very top of mind. They are very important issues in the public discourse beyond what a political party might want to talk about. You know, we're as a public talking about those issues mm-hmm. to to a much larger extent than I think we were 
you know, six months ago or a year ago. And so there, what's interesting, we see with issue ownership and, and the potential for it to actually affect voters, we noticed, we researchers noticed, I didn't do this study, um, that when issues are salient, so when the issue is top of mind, when the issue seems like an important issue to the voter, that's when ownership of the issue by one party or another impacts their voting choice. But you could have a party that owns an issue like the environment and like the Green Party, for example, pretty clearly defined as like, this is the this is the issue we are running with, right? Mm-hmm. So the Green Party, yes, they own the issue of the environment, but if people don't think that it is the top issue, the one that matters the most right now, they're not going to be swayed to vote for the Green Party just because they also care about the environment and the Green Party owns that issue, right? So I think what you're bringing up is, is pointing towards how the issue ownership piece fits with the realities of the campaign and the realities of the flow of what political topics matter over time. Because we kind of think about the idea of issue ownership as potentially stable for a given party. And maybe for the Green Party it is, but for other parties, it sort of is shifting actually, right? And so I think it's important to recognize that as racial justice or childcare or other issues show up, parties have to be reevaluating what issues they want to own. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, that's that's the challenge, right? So you'll have, you know, long-term far-sighted ideals, I sorry, ideals and ideas uh, that uh, the party is is tracking and, and planning toward and and of course, uh, no one expected 2020 to be the year that it has been, right? So uh, so I, I do recall in the election last year the question was, you know, what's the issue that that voters are uh, are making their decision on and, you know, a year later <laughs> um, which party was was ready to react to a pandemic was what was important, and uh, and we couldn't have seen that coming. And so uh, there's there's a real need for parties to be able to adapt to that reality. And, and uh, but then I think there's a, also a real need for parties to have a sense of those far sighted issues that still have to be tracked towards, even when they're not uh, in the national media, and especially in a year like this year where. The issue is eclipsed every day with the, with something new, yep. um, and uh, and so you almost have to have two sides of uh, your team that are that are working towards those longer uh, those longer term pieces. And I like to say, thinking you know seven or eight generations ahead, and, and making sure we're not forgetting those those big things. Um, but of course, are ready to adapt and, and ready to speak to what the issue of the actual day is. Yeah, I think that's really really great and really useful to think about who in the party is doing the work and who outside of the party can kind of influence that work. When you're talking about internally, who's actually thinking about what issues, I mean, they might not be thinking about our own, but in, in that sense of like, what issues are we going to prioritize? Are we going to care about? Are we going to have both short-term and long-term? Like who, who are the actors who are doing that? Well, there's, there's so many, of course, there's the elected members themselves that make up the, uh, the team and, and then their own teams. So I usually think of that to be their policy teams will will have their, usually they're on the more long-term, you know, pieces. Um, of course, there's an issues manager that's working with each minister and 
and they're on the day-to-day -day of what's uh, what's what's likely to come up in a question period that the minister needs to be prepared for. But uh, but then outside of that, there's always a team that's working toward you know the next platform that's thinking about the next major speech that uh, that the prime minister needs to deliver or or the leader of a party, um, and those become those uh, those moments that the the parties. Uh, main issues, you know, have to come to light. So throne speeches and budget speeches, um, of course, fiscal updates. Um, I also uh, think about those that are holding the pen on ministers' mandate letters, and uh, those end up being, you know, the way that we can track what they're working toward. But again, of course, those, you know, become sort of set in stone until they're updated, and, and there are a lot of things that could come up in between. And so, uh, and then outside of that, yeah, there's, there's party members that are always, you know, having policy conference and talking through what they'd like to see. Um, and then I think social media has really shifted this. There's there's just the general public that can can really get, uh, that can get uh, movement on, on an issue on a, a Canadian politics hashtag and, and sort of force uh, our, our leaders to really start talking about things that they might not be uh, speaking on. And so uh, those sort of influencers with their large followings can can really move on things. And, and as they're able to, I use the word thunderclap together mm -hmm. um, and sort of put together campaigns that uh, that sort of force uh, these leaders to start talking about this, um, whatever it may be. Um, I think that's been a, a new actor in this entire exchange that, uh, that you know, political uh, actors have needed to start to really pay attention to as well. I think that's a really good point drawing on not just the people internal to the political party, but also those who are interacting with it, the general public having a voice. You know, before social media was quite so omnipresent, we also had, you know, barbecues uh, at the community level and and town hall meetings and other kinds of events where locally you might go. And, and if you're particularly politically interested, uh, you would go and talk to your candidate or your elected representative and and try and convince them that this issue you care about matters a lot and mm -hmm. and now social media allows people to do that kind of regardless of geographic bounds to a certain extent and and to you know really capitalize on on creating momentum through hashtag campaigns as an example and so i think that's really interesting but i wonder this all makes me think about the difference between whatever is important right now and so that salience component and and how you can modify what seems important right now through those types of acts versus that more long-term this is what our party stands for this is what we want you to be associating us with those are you know slightly different logics and so maybe if we can look at that longer term one for a second how do you think that fits in with ideas of like ideology or partisanship? Well, I mean, I, first of all, I, I, when I first started getting involved in partisan politics, I, 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 you know, did a whole bunch of research. I was trying to understand the history of the party and uh, what, uh, what they'd stood for in the past, what major changes they'd, uh, they'd been involved in moving. And I thought that that process was really going to help me <laughs> connect with uh, with the party. And, and over my time in party politics, it became really clear to me that the leadership of the party really plays a pretty massive role in, in setting that course and, and setting that agenda and sort of rallying their, their caucus and their team and, and, and the party as well around that vision. And so as that pendulum swings, as new leaders come in, um, I found that to almost, uh, you know, be a 
a, a turning point for, for a party as they sort of start to, to shift and, and have to gel around uh, around that leader. And so um, I found the, those leadership campaigns sort of become that that new identity moment for uh, a party. Um, and, it, and it does really change how they're uh, what their agenda looks like and how they're communicating. And, uh, and so that choice ends up being, uh, pretty central to, uh, to how they, uh, how they adapt. Um, and so I, I found, you know, it's, it's hard to say that there's, there's one or two or three sort of central pieces that are always true to a party. I think that, uh, every, whatever the cadence is, every four years, every 10 years, whatever you're choosing a new leader, maybe every other year, um, <laughs> that, uh, that, that process and that person and, uh, and what they stand for, whatever their truth is that they've identified through, um, through the campaign, um, almost becomes what, uh, what the party starts to uh, gel itself around. And so I, I, I'd like to say that there are sort of these long-term pieces that are always central to, uh, to each party. Um, but, uh, but I've, I've really started to, I mean, in my short time in politics, I'm 33, so <laughs> there'll be others that, uh, have seen more of these transitions and, and perhaps, you know, before, uh, there was a little bit more consistency. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely feeling that, uh, that those races become, you know, that, uh, that real shift for, uh, for an apparatus and, uh, and, and depending on the choice that's made, you know, it, it can almost, uh, yeah, completely shift what those, uh, what those three or four core pieces that the party even long-term, um, is, uh, is planning to work towards. And so I know that that, um, in some ways, uh, works against itself. Can you, can you have long-term goals <laughs> if you have short-term <laughs> leaders? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and they're changing those, uh, those targets all of the time. I wonder if you have any examples that come to mind of the issues that you think specific parties own, um, and, and maybe issues that, you know, at one time they owned and now they don't. Well, I mean, I think a a really good example would have been cannabis legalization. So, you know, we saw that that was always very central in the Green Party platforms. And then very suddenly the liberals, you know, picked it up and ran with it and did it and, you know, felt themselves owning it all the way through. And so that uh, that was one that I think, you know, traditionally folks would have looked back and and said it was uh, like a Green Party issue for years and years and years. And very suddenly, you know, the liberals started to shift on it. Um, And then uh, it it became a a, like a true center (laughs) of Mm -hmm. uh, a pillar of of their mandate of that first mandate um, for them to action. And so uh, I've again, I I think because of the multiplicity of our, our, our party system in Canada, there's uh, there's there's a lot of argument around, say, you know, pharmacare, and uh, you know, I think that's now very um, NDP owned, and, and sort of questions around, you know, how far you know a liberal uh, minority government is going to, you know, move, and, and making sure that they're keeping them uh, within, uh, you know, a larger tent and and uh, and working alongside them. Um, but I think, uh, and, I, and I also think that childcare is actually another one on that list of, you know, to, to what extent was this more of an NDP issue? And uh, historically, there have been moments that the liberals uh, were, were pushing a little bit further and, you know, tried, failed <laughs> uh, along the way. Um, and then, you know, right now, because of COVID, because of the impact that this uh, this moment is, is, uh, is making on 
on, on women's lives, especially um, it required that any governing you know party is is moving on it. And so uh, I think there's there's always this feeling that uh, that you know something an issue's been stolen or uh, has been hijacked. Uh, but I think that there's also again that necessity for a governing party in a moment to also be willing to uh, to act, um, even if it's not something that's been central um, to to their their issues uh, at all times. Yeah, I think that's a really really good point and something that is definitely informed by the the crisis management component of of being a political leader when we're in a pandemic like there's a point where the idea of you owning an issue over some other party owning the issue like that can't actually be the ultimate goal because you need everybody to be on board so that you can solve the problems that are facing people very immediately and impacting their daily lives in such huge ways, right? So I think that that example that you bring up of, of COVID and how sometimes that brings up issues like childcare that just everyone needs to make this their top priority right now, regardless of whether you're in competition to be the owner of it, it just needs to be the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's interesting because it's it's the observed reality that we're facing, but it doesn't fit perfectly in with the idea of issue ownership as as a theory. The idea of issue ownership as a theory is that, you know, in order to create good strategy and to get voters on your side, you kind of need to be able to differentiate yourself from other parties. Mm-hmm. And and it makes me think about the actual political context in terms of how many political parties there are. A lot of these theories get developed in the U.S. because the U.S. has just been the dominant in in English language academia and really a dominant force in political news coverage, too. So in the U.S. context, you know, there's two parties most of the time that anybody cares about and independents are not really thought of as particularly powerful players. And so it's easy to think about it as a as a, well, one party's winning and the other party's losing. But as we've pointed to in Canada, we've got a variety of different parties. The number of parties changes over time. One really great example from some of the issue ownership literature that's come out is the idea of the liberals owning crime as an issue in the late 90s when the kind of right side of the Canadian political spectrum was separated into multiple parties. And then once the Harper government came into power and there was one Conservative Party of Canada, they became the party that was perceived to kind of own crime as an issue. And we wouldn't see that divide in the states of Republicans versus Democrats, one owning crime and then all of a sudden it flipping. But in Canada, because we have this multi-party system that can evolve and change, we do see those shifts. And I think that's a, a really interesting indicator of the actual political structure impacting how these kinds of theories can matter or not. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and and uh, I'm I'm starting to watch uh, because there's nothing else on television now. Danish uh, political <laughs> shows, and so even more thinking too about when you've got you know all of these different parties that need to find a way to come together and work together. I mean, Canada, you know, I I, I say that we've got a, a wider range of parties, but it's only comparatively to the U.S. Um, <laughs> that that statement sort of made, um, and uh, and yes, uh, that uh, that shift and and that landscape. Uh, 
depending on you know how our how our parties are made up uh, absolutely does uh, have an impact on which issues are, are really pushed and owned and in what ways and I you know gun reform I think is another that right now we're uh, we're really seeing everyone get into their corners around um, and the liberals again trying you know, making an attempt to uh, to own and, and to talk about uh, and and to push forward on and uh, and I think we're we're I, I'm starting to watch it and, and thinking a little bit more about how we uh, how we don't then corner ourselves in this uh, attempt to differentiate from, you know, where we think another party is going to go that's the wrong way to go comparatively. Again, to uh, to ensure that we're, we're still coming out with smart policy, um, not reactive, only to uh, to ensure that we're differentiated. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I have one last question for you. Sure. All right. It is a quick little quiz. Okay. <laughs> Can you explain to me what issue ownership is? Uh, so my understanding of issue ownership is that uh, our political parties uh, will often uh, identify uh, a, a short list of, uh, of issues that uh, they're making the decision consciously to own comparatively to other parties that uh, might be on the other side of those issues or ignoring them altogether um, in order to connect with voters very directly, but also to define themselves in a way that helps voters that uh, may have uh, specific values uh, aligned uh, to, to help them make a, a voting decision that is well preferable <laughs> to that party um and uh, and in between elections uh, of course to to maintain that support that's really great the only thing that i would add is really a focus on the perception of the public and mm -hmm. what the public thinks the party mm -hmm. is is dominating or, or is most yeah. competent on or, or whatnot because you know a party can decide I'm going to have cannabis as my issue but then if they do a terrible job at making cannabis legalization the actual issue that they're associated with nobody's actually going to perceive them as owning the issue okay public perception yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the public perception feeds into what the party chooses to do. And then what the party chooses to do feeds into the public perception. It's not just one or the other. We need to really recognize that it's the two of them together that lead to this idea of a party having ownership over one issue or another. Okay. And definitely not issue management, which was what I thought we were going to be talking about. So. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> My lesson of the day. <laughs> issue management is pretty intertwined. It's It's part of the idea of what do we do once we have issue ownership as as a base thanks for listening everyone that was our episode on issue ownership if you're interested in learning more about the concept or any of the other theories we talked about today please go ahead and check the show notes or head over to paulcomtech.ca